Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back once again to New Books Network. Today I'm here with Dr. Pankas Jain to talk about his book, Dharma and Ecology of Hindu Communities, Sustenance and Sustainability. And I think um, coming to this book, uh, before coming to the author himself, I think uh, when I kind of uh, came across this book, uh, it, it was it was quite interesting in a sense for me also. I'm I'm trying to look at the Hindu communities. I mean, even though my research work is on Christianity and animism and all, I'm also trying to understand the Hindu communities as such. So I think this is a opportunity for me also to kind of try to reflect mm. uh, on the Hindu communities and try to understand uh, the very aspects of the Hindu communities so that it will be uh, a help for me in the in the in the days to come as I pursue my work also. So I think the the the, the work itself in terms of trying to understand environment from the Hindu philosophical uh, perspective and also religious perspective is something uh, which is quite interesting in that sense because the book also talks about different communities and how you know uh, we can use terma uh, and how you know this can be used uh, uh, as a way of trying to portray the the Hindu way of trying to understand the environment, which might be a different way from how uh, some other traditions might understand it. So I think that is a very interesting way of trying to. Um, put things and then also portray certain ideas of how the environment can be understand, understood from a Hindu perspective. So I think uh, let's just straight away go into the uh, into the book itself. And before coming into the book, I think I would like the author to tell us something about yourself. I'm here, uh, if you see my background, I'm here at the Flame University in Pune area, the mm-hmm. outskirts of Pune, uh, where there is a uh, Humanities, Department of Humanities and Languages, which I head. I'm the head of the department. I also chair the India Center, in which uh, I've been running a series of webinars on covering various Indian assets, Indian facets, uh, music and films and cultures, religions, languages, Ayurveda, yoga, and other different aspects of Indian civilization. Uh, and uh, before joining Flame, I was in the US for 25 years. I got my MA and PhD in religious studies at uh, University of Iowa and Columbia University. And then I was a tenure professor at the University of North Texas in Dallas area. And now I'm back in the back in India, back in my motherland where I was born. Yes. Uh, before going to US, I had B, B computer science from Karnataka University. And I'm back in uh, back in India. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, you explain it in a very short way, but I think that's quite a journey, right? <laughs> Long journey of uh, yes. going to different disciplines and, you know, now back coming okay. back to India. But that's quite interesting. So um, tell me something about this book, Dharma and Ecology of Hindu Communities. I mean, uh, how did you come about developing an idea or kind of like what very influence of you coming towards uh, you know, writing a book, something like this, of a Hindu understanding of the environment and such? Yes. Uh, so when I was doing my PhD at the University of Iowa, I was looking for a topic, a topic which would have a contemporary re- relevance and also a topic that can, uh, you know, talk about the religious studies issues, different theoretical frameworks that we use in religious studies, uh, and a topic that uh, would cut across, you know, two different camps of, liberal versus conservatives or left versus right, blue versus red, you know, so I thought environmentalism would be a good topic to that cuts across party lines that cuts across all these colors of greens and saffron and blue and red. 
uh, right? So, and, uh, and also I wanted to raise some theoretical issues. Uh, so I, uh, the title of my dissertation and my book is Dharma and Ecology, not religion and ecology, which is one of the key terms or, you know, one of the disciplines in religious studies, but very consciously I chose to title my work as Dharma and Ecology because Dharma is uh, what defines uh, many aspects of Indian culture, not religion in my humble view and many other people, mother, many other senior scholars have also raised these issues, Asad Talal, uh, right, and, uh, and uh, uh, Balyangadhar in Belgium and many other scholars have raised these issues that religion as such is does more injustice to non-Western world such as in India rather than, rather than uh, so that, that's, that term or that notion of religion should be avoided when we study or write about uh, non-Western culture such as in India. So that all those issues I raise in my, in my work. Yeah, and uh, that's quite an uh, interesting trajectory of coming to work on a topic like this. And so uh, coming to the contents of the chapter itself, and there are um, eight chapters, including the introduction and conclusion, and coming to the preliminary aspects of uh, trying to understand uh, the the aspect of uh, dharma and the, the, the Hindu understanding of ecology or environment as such. So coming to the chapter two, I mean, where you lay some theoretical framework. So uh, what, what are some of the uh, theoretical propositions that are there that uh, when you're working on it, right, that were running around and, you know, what were some mm-hmm. of the theoretical proposition that you found was helpful and also some of the position that you found were not very helpful in trying to understand um, your work mm-hmm. as such, yeah. Right. So before I started uh, working on my research, uh, I was aware of the contempt, you know, I had to do literature review, systematic literature review of the existing literature. And I found an uh, edited volume by Lance Nelson in which uh, he has raised issues uh, that because uh, Hinduism and uh, even Jainism, Buddhism have these uh, renunciatory uh, impetus in their philosophy, in their theology, that world is just an illusion. So if world is an illusion, then nature is also illusion. Nature does not value. Nature is devalued in Hindu thought, Buddhist thought, and Jain thought because of the renunciation aspects. If that is the case, and if world is just an illusion, then nature, if nature is really getting degraded and nature's environment is getting polluted, Hindus, Buddhists, and Jains would not care at all. And they, should, they wouldn't care and they shouldn't care because nature is just an illusion. So that was the one major uh, you know, challenge to the any possibility of Hindu Hindu view towards ecology. That was already a major challenge by people like Lance, scholars like Niles Nelson in California. Uh, that was one major thing that, that I, I responded in my, in my writing. Uh, and uh, other, other uh, models were uh, what, is, what is called as devotional model in which uh, the devotional aspects of Hindu tradition are highlighted, such as that earth is a goddess, mother goddess. So Hindus, because they are devoted towards Mother Earth, Mother Nature, cow, and many other many other stones and reptiles and animals and birds, saving or revealing nature is part of being Hindu. So that devotional aspect can be very helpful in raising environmental awareness among the among Hindus. Other uh, aspect or other model of uh, environmentalism coming from India was the what is called as renunciatory model. In which the because of the renunciation renunciation zeal in Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, instead of so you know different from Lance Nelson, other scholars such as Chris Chapel have propounded that because of renunciation, the idea of possession, idea of consumption is much less in Hindu, Buddhist, and Jain tradition because already the idea is to renounce everything. 
So if everything is to be renounced, then the idea of consumption or accumulation of resources would be much less and less and less. That would, so in my view, I think that would really apply to Jain and Buddhist views because they really highlight renunciation much more than Hindu tradition because Hindu tradition celebrates Grihasthashram, the householder part of the life in which you don't have to renounce prematurely until 75, you can live with family and you are supposed to be living in the society, but not of society. You don't have to become worldly, but you can still remain part of the world. So that is the Hindu view. That, so Hindu view or Hindu philosophy should be differentiated from Jain or Buddhist philosophy. That was, in my view, that was necessary. And that's what I differentiate. You know, don't have to club everything. Don't have to uh, interpret Hindu tradition, which highlights or celebrates Grihastha Ashram or householder life. That is the main impetus in Hindu tradition, not the Sannyasa Ashram, which is the main focus in Jain and Buddhist tradition. So those are the two models, devotional model and renunciation model to try to understand these environmental aspects within Hindu and Indian culture at large. And then there was the challenge by Lance Nelson that need, needed to be responded. So that all is uh, in that uh, second chapter. I've also heard a lot about, you know, this view of looking at the reality as something which is uh, illusion, right? So uh, illusion, that's why I'm saying that, you know, Hindu communities and all do not care about the environment and all. Um, so where does this idea uh, comes from? And, you know, how does it connect to Hinduism or, or where does it diverge in that sense? Yeah. The idea of illusion, are you asking? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The idea of illusion, yeah. Okay. Uh, that is, uh, I think most famous statement about illusion comes from Adi Shankaracharya, mm. almost 1,000 years uh, from present time. Uh, he was a major philosopher, theologian, you know, whatever word we, only, we can use. But he was uh, born in Kerala and uh, he defeated in intellectual debates, Buddhist and Jain theologians and philosopher. And he, the, at least the legend is that he traveled across India and established four major centers to propagate Hindu philosophy, Hindu ideas from Dwarka in the West, uh, Puri in the East, in Odisha, present day Odisha, and uh, Badrinath, near Badrinath Joshimat in Uttarakhand and in Shrangeri in, uh, in Karnataka area. That, there are the four months that were established. So the idea is that uh, even though he did all these work, all this work and he traveled across India, he did his best to propagate Hindu philosophy intellectually defeated Buddhist and Jain philosophers. Yet the, there is a stereotype about Adi Shankaracharya that, uh, that because he made this statement that Brahm Satyam Jagat Mithya, that only the Brahm, that is transcendental reality, only that is reality, only that is the true reality. Jagat Mithya means the world is illusion. That was one statement that we find in his writings. But I think uh, to be really fair to Shankaracharya, we have to look at his work and especially how Hindus have interpreted his life in general. Because in, from Hindu perspective, Shankara was not just a renunciatory person. He was not just a sannyasi. He was not just a monk who was sitting in some cave in, a, in Himalaya. But he was traveling across India. He, was tra he, was, he, he did his best. He, 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 did, he made a great contribution to really revive Hindu philosophy, Hindu way of life in a major way. And because of his efforts, at least partly, Buddhism had to eventually, you know, uh, weakening of Buddhism definitely uh, was uh, fueled by the efforts or activism by Adi Shankaracharya. That's the, that's the Hindu view of, uh, of, of the history of, of that time. So that's 
all that. No, that's that that's really quite interesting because um, I I come from um, a Christian tradition, and you know when in in Christian tradition in the uh, in the layman terms, when you talk about the Hindu communities in terms of how they understand reality, that then they say that okay, uh, you know it's a, it's an illusion, something like that, right? They understand reality as an illusion and all, and I mean that's the, that's what the you know in the in the normal conversation and all goes around, and I think the way you have uh, spelled it out. Uh, of how, where, from where it has come from and how people have interpreted that. I think that really clarifies this very notion of, of trying to understand a reality uh, in, in a very different way and in, from a very different lens. So I think that's uh, quite very helpful. So uh, here uh, in the book, uh, most importantly, you talk about a movement, a community, and also uh, you talk about the fields. Uh, uh, yeah, fields. So th these are some three important aspects that you kind of uh, try to delve in and talk about. So coming to the first one, and I think... Uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this one right, but Swadhyaya movement. So uh, coming to this movement. So what what really is this Swadhyaya movement? So first of all, Swadhyaya literally means simply self study. Okay. And the movement started around 1940s when the founder Dadaji Pandurang Shastri Athavande he started giving discourses, pravachans in Mumbai area, CP tank area, in, there's a Bhagavad Gita Patshala where he started giving pravachans, discourses, lectures on the Bhagavad Gita, Vedas, Upanishads, and so on. And as people started gathering uh, and listening, started listening to him, they were eventually inspired to put those ideas, put those teachings in their action, in their lives. People started visiting remote areas of Gujarat, Saurashtra area, coastal areas of Gujarat, where they tried to share these ideas with their fellow Hindus in coastal areas of Gujarat. And eventually, that those kind of visits, which, which were called as Bhakti Ferry and Bhav Ferry, that is devotional visits, hmm. led to the creation of a new kind of a community, was called as Swadhyay Parivar. And in that, the idea was that we are all united by common bond of spirituality. So that Parivar feeling, which is also in the Hindu text, that entire world is a entire planet is a family, entire world is a family. So how do we experience that, that family feeling or universal brotherhood or sisterhood, universal fraternity, how to experience that? So that, this is an experiment, as they call, call these actions, the Bhakti Peri is kind of an experiment, spiritual experiment. So in that uh, you know, spirit of experiment as they met their fellow Hindus in Gujarat and eventually Madhya Pradesh, Maharashtra and uh, different parts of India and, and eventually different parts of the world. You know, every, almost every part of the world has Fatiha movement now. So idea was to keep expanding and keep experiencing this idea of a universal, brother, universal fraternity. So that is how the work started. It became a family, spiritual family. And then with the family, you know, everything that was done by these, this, these people had some byproducts as environmentalism. environmentalism. Environmentalism as such was not their official focus. Their focus was simply to keep experiencing this spiritual brotherhood, uh, fraternity. And uh, you, so, so whatever else happened in the society or in the environment was just a byproduct. That was not the focus. Uh, so they did many, many things. They created new orchards, new gardens new sacred groves and so on. So all that had very positive environmental impact. You talk about different features of uh, Swadhyaya uh, movement uh, that resembles different mm -hmm. world traditions, different features. Now, um, 
just give a short description of all these features. Uh, the first feature was the aporeal uh, tharma, and the second was mm-hmm. um, bovine tharma, earth tharma, and then I think uh, lastly you talk about this yogesvara. Give a short description about what all of this uh, tharma uh, is yeah. about. Right. So arboreal dharma is my, I mean, I coined this term. What they call it is Briksh Mandir simply. Briksh Mandir. Briksh means tree. Mandir means temple. So tree temples. So they created uh, around uh, more than two dozen tree temples in different districts of Gujarat, where, uh, you know, the entire village would come together, buy a piece of land, plant some fruit trees, and whatever income comes, comes out of those fruits is sold in the market. And whatever money comes is treated as a divine blessing from divinity. And that money is used very consciously, very carefully to help needy people in their particular local village. So that was an example of arboreal dharma. Arboreal means, you know, botani- botanical dharma kind of. Then there is a, 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 a Yogeshwar Krishi, which is a spiritual farming. And the idea is again similar, you know, whatever grain you're raising, you know, growing, you know, paddy or, or whatever, you know, uh, wheat or whatever. And again, the, the, whatever profit comes out of that farming is again treated like a spiritual blessing. That's how the entire village gets benefit. And similarly, cattle or goras or cattle worship in which uh, whatever dairy products are sold uh, is, are the spiritual property of the entire village. So those, these are the examples. So then ocean worship is another example, Samudra Puja, ocean worship, uh, and, and on and on. So they, they, they created these experiments. They don't call it project or, you know, you know they are not uh, charity work, but they are all, again, to express their gratitude, their, you know, experience the divinity, experience the reverence for trees, reverence for cattle, reverence for ocean, reverence for Mother Earth, reverence for Mother, Mother Nature. In that effort to uh, ex- express their reverence for nature, if, if a byproduct, like a byproduct, if the trees are being planted or farming is done in a more uh, better way or cattle are being tra- treated in a better way, these are all just byproducts. They are, you know, helpful for the environment. But that's not the real focus of their work. That's what they always clarified, that we are not environmentalists, we are simply devotee, devotees of Krishna, devotees of maybe, you know, different Hindu gods and goddesses. But they are not environmentalists. That's what their, their uh, emphasis was always and is always still. So that is the description of all this Aboreal, Bovine and the Art Dharma, right? Uh, mm-hmm. That is mm-hmm. how it is portrayed. Yeah, and that's that's uh, really interesting. And so coming to the fourth chapter, I think uh, this is where you talk about the Bishnoi community. So who are these Bishnois and what, what is this community? Yeah, right, right. So Bishnoi people came into the news first time. They caught attention of many people in India that time in the nineties when uh, there was a Hindi film being being made in, uh, the shooting was happening in Rajasthan, my home state, by the way, uh, and not too far from where I was born. Uh, this film was being shot in Jodhpur, Pali region. Uh, and Salman Khan, Saif Ali Khan, Tabu and Neelam, these actors and actresses in the film, actors and actors, they were, uh, you know, involved in shooting, film shooting. Uh, in one of the breaks, I guess, shooting breaks, they wanted to have some leisure activities, entertainment, whatever they were trying to do. So they rushed to a Bishnoi village. They went to a Bishnoi village called Kankani area where Bishnoi people live. And uh, that's where black bugs can also be found because Bishnois have made, made sure that no hunters or poachers were ever allowed to hunt these animals or, or even green trees were not, not allowed to cut by any outsiders in the Bishnoi villages. So Salman Khan and his colleagues, his friends, when they come and 
when they go to this village and, and when Salman sh- uh, shoots Black Book, so Bishnu people rush to the spot. Salman is caught, given to the police, and the court case has been running for you know, many decades now. So that's when Bishnuis first came into the picture. But very little was known, uh, especially in English language, of Bishnui culture, Bishnui history, Bishnui rituals, who these Bishnuis are, what the, what's the meaning of the word Bishnui. So all that I traced, being uh, you know, native of that region, I could connect with Bishnui people very easily. I could understand their language, Rajasthani. So I translated their entire sacred text from Rajasthani Hindi to English. Uh, I collected all the ritual details. I added all the ritual details also in my book. The, all the different examples of their environmentalism. Salman Khan is just, you know, tip of the iceberg. They have been doing these things. They've been stopping hunters and poachers. They've been catching hunters and poachers for decades, even centuries. So they have a long history of 500 years. And the Swadhyay Parivar is almost one, just 100, one century. But Vishnu people have their history of five centuries. And so I go all the way to the origin of Vishnu, how they started, what's the meaning of the word Vishnu, Vishnu, 20 and 9, they have 29 rules by which they live their entire life. Uh, and uh, the Guru Jambeshwar, their founder, was uh, born also in the desert region of Rajasthan. And when there was no rain for many years, he has some kind of a mystical experience and he comes out with these 29 rules in which he asks his followers to make sure that no green trees cut, no meat is consumed by Vishnui. So vegetarianism was highly promoted 500 years back by the Vishnui founder, Guru Jambeshwar. Uh, daily hygiene was to be practiced. Daily shower has to be, to be, to be taken by all Vishnuis. So all those very interesting rules he, he formulated, that became the foundation for Vishnui dharma, Vishnui culture, Vishnui community. Uh, so I go to the different villages. I went to different villages of, of Rajasthan and I traced their history and their environmentalism, their culture, their rituals, so all that becomes part of uh, the chapter on, on Vishnuis. Well, yeah. And uh, I think in this chapter, you brought out the aspect of dharmic environmentalism among the Vishnuis in the history and also about dharmic sanctuaries. You know, you brought out these two aspects. So what are some of the um, interesting features in that sense, uh, in this aspect, right? In these two aspects, uh, coming to the Vishnus, when you look at the Vishnus, what are some of the interesting features of these aspects? Yeah. So, so like I mentioned that, you know, long before climate change or biodiversity, global warming, environmentalism, long before these words that entered our uh, our language, our daily usage, you know, 500 years before, mm-hmm. Guru Jambeshwar had already taken care, he tried his best to take care of the very fragile ecology of Rajasthan, which is a desert region. So now, even today, we find Rajasthan uh, desert or India's in, the only state of India which, where there is, there is some desert is Rajasthan. But Rajasthan remains the most densely populated de- desert in the world in terms of flora and fauna and humans. So why this flourishing of flora and fauna, you know, humans and animals and birds and plants and trees that are found in, in this desert region? One of the reasons is the Bishnui community because they have practiced strict, strict vegetarianism. They have not allowed to be, to, for any out, anybody to cut their green trees. Nobody can go and kill their black bucks or deer or any other animals or birds. Their founder uh, taught these great lessons to his followers, and he uh, he also did many of the things that he was teaching others. So he created also these new sacred groves that are still maintained by Vishnu people. 
uh, world's first environmental sacrifice was also done by Bishnoi in, in 1730s or so. Uh, about 363 Bishnoi men, women, and children sacrificed their lives as they literally hugged their Khejdi tree near Pali and Jodhpur in Rajasthan region. And as Bishnoi, uh, as the soldiers from Jodhpur King were looking for the green, you know, firewood you know, from the Bishnoi villages, Bishnoi people sacrificed their lives, but they did not let the green trees cut by these soldiers. So that's the first major example of environmental sacrifice, sac literal sacrifice to save trees that we find in Bishnoi village. Uh, many scholars think that that example of literal hugging of the trees became the role model or became the inspiration for the Chippo movement in 1970s when uh, people in Uttarakhand, people in Himalayan villages of present-day Uttarakhand or that time Uttar Pradesh, when they also literally hugged the trees and saved thousands of trees uh, in the entire Himalayan region. So those are some really interesting aspects of Vishnuri that now they are pretty well known. But when I was doing my research, my uh, translation of their work is the first translation in English of the Vishnuri sacred texts and Vishnuri history, Vishnu culture and environmentalism. Yeah. 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 So coming to the next chapter, I mean, you have uh, been saying this word, sacred groups. Uh, groups. So, um, I mean, for the sake of our audience, what is uh, this sacred group? What makes a group sacred? Yeah. Yeah. Tia, you are sitting in Meghalaya. And I, when I came to Meghalaya in 2018, I went to Nehu, where you are located, where you're doing your PhD. Then I went to Shillong. I went to Chirapunji. Mm. Just on the outskirts of Shillong, there is a major sacred grove, which is maintained by local tribes. And all it means is nothing, nothing can be cut. Not even a leaf can be taken out of that sacred grove. Sacred means sacred, means reverential, revered. Grove means bunch of trees or you know, group or, or a part of a forest. So any part of the forest where not a single leaf, not a single piece of that tree, any tree can be taken out. That is called sacred because it, the entire patch of that forest is sacred for the local communities. There are thousands and thousands of sacred groves across India and other parts of the world as well, but especially where more tribal people are, because tribal people or, or local indigenous people uh, have very close connection with nature across India and across the world, Native Americans in North America, South America, uh, in Africa and uh, Southeast Asia and, and definitely in India. So, so sacred groves were newly created by Swadhyay Parivar, like I mentioned earlier, Bishnoi people by Guru Jambeshwar, and by Bheel community, which is my next chapter, the Bheels still have their sacred groves where not a single leaf, not a single twig can be taken out of that sacred grove in Rajasthan, Gujarat, Madhya Pradesh, where I did my research for, the, for my third chapter. So that is the sacred grove. So that is how you explain sacred grove, where there is a shrine inside that patch of the forest because of the shrine, because of the deity, the entire patch, entire that patch becomes sacred, very, very, very sacred, extremely yeah. sacred. Yeah. And while talking about sacred groups, you specifically pick up this uh, Pilg community. So who, who are these Pilgs? Right. So like I was just hinting, so indigenous people of any region are also called as, you know, in common language, tribal people. So Bheel is some, one of the scheduled tribe or scheduled tribes of India, like Minas and other many others indigenous communities. So Bheels are also one of the sh scheduled tribes of India. And so because they have been living on their land for thousands of years, so that is how they have lived. So, you know, they have also designated some part of the forest as sacred grove because inside that sacred grove, there is a small shrine to Hanuman, to local Bhairav or local Shiva or any, you know, any stone like a figure 
and they just start doing rituals on that on that figure and becomes a you know temple a small shrine and because of the shrine that part of the forest becomes sacred and that sacred area of that forest uh, is saved and as the you know nearby areas of the of tree nearby tree can be cut but because of the sacred grove that tree will not those trees will not never be cut that is how they they have saved their uh, their flora and fauna for for thousands of years yeah so that is how so, fields have done yeah so and when you talk about the fields interestingly you you use the word like faith based sacred groups and also the second category is faith based uh, and government effort sacred group related to so what are these this uh, distinctions and what is this faith based uh, sacred groups yeah so sacred groves or any you know plantation activities if they are done by, by done by the government it is a very limited appeal you know government people will come forest department they will come and they will plant some new trees but if no, nobody is maintaining those trees those trees may not survive after few years but if the trees are planted and taken care of with faith as their main emphasis because people have faith in certain indigenous local trees then those trees have really long life those trees will survive for forever so even government departments such as forest departments in india they in many cases they will work in tandem with local communities indigenous communities so that the trees can be better taken care of trees will not die off after few years so that is how they both work hand in hand that is how they have made sure that the trees survive forest survive for you know whatever with such a heavy pressure of population in india there are almost 1.4 billion people in india and yet only in india outside africa only in india you find large beasts such as rhinoceros in assam not too far from where you are atiya uh, we find elephants large elephants all across india we find lions only in gujarat in india outside africa only other country no other country in the world has lions except india and africa of course african countries have lion but african countries are not so heavily populated but india has 1.4 billion people if there is any other comparative country all animals are wiped out north america no wildlife no you know no major beasts are found in in north america south america or china russia all everywhere they are all extinct they are all gone they are all killed hunted for whatever reasons you know for for the different parts of animals smuggling whatever but in india we have tigers we have leopards we have rhinoceros we have elephants we have bears we have lions so why because of these communities that have taken care that that, that treat these animals many of these animals many of these trees are treated sacred treated uh, as if they are divine because of the traditions of vegetarianism that is why that is how these forests have survived for thousands of years and even today they survive and many of again many of the cases are where national park is designated by indian government or state governments state governments but they work hand in hand with local communities because if you don't involve local communities those government efforts are all top down efforts but but local communities are bottom up effort they have been living there for thousands of years so when both forces combine together join together that is how you save your, the flora and fauna that is how you save beasts that, how, that is how you save save animals and forests and that is how india still can have still does have all these large parts of forest that are still intact across arunachal pradesh across assam across himalayas across you know many parts of gujarat and south india 
and on and on. Yeah, yeah. So um, since we have uh, talked so much about the communities and the people and, you know, uh, how uh, they understand the environment and the dharma and all, during the last part of the your chapterization, chapter 7, uh, we come to some theoretical aspect. And I think let's just, uh, you know, dabble on some theoretical aspect because these are some things which are very important. So uh, how do we understand the word dharma? Can you explain something or say something on this? Yeah. Right. So in the beginning, I was uh, alluding to the word dharma, which is a better word for understanding Indian culture, non-Western cultures, uh, because, right? Because, uh, you know, especially in the Indian context, dharma comes from the Sanskrit root dhri. Dhri means to sustain, to withhold, to support, right? And the dhri means to sustain, most importantly. And sustain is the root for the word sustainability and sustenance, right? So I connect sustainability with the meaning of the word dharma, which is based on the root dhri. Dhri also means to sustain. So dharma inherently, implicitly means to sustain. Dharma is the force that sustains the universe, that sustains the entire human society, the animal kingdom, the entire planet, the entire cosmos, entire, all the universal forces, seasons, everything is sustained by, a, you know, in the Vedas, there was a word called ritam. Rhythm, which means which which is translated, which can be translated as cosmic rhythm. So rhythm, rhythm maintains the cosmic rhythm. And then eventually rhythm was replaced by dharma in the Rigveda itself. Dharma has the same connotations of the cosmic rhythm. Dharma is also, as I explained, dharma has this, this root of the uh, word sustain to sustain. Mm-hmm. So dharma is the idea that all these communities are based on. Vishnu is Swadhyaya is Bhils. And the way they treat their flora and fauna is not as environmentalist. They're just, you know, expressing their life. Their life principles are around these ideas of treating everything as sacred, not harming others, and following the rules of nature. Based on these dharmic, cosmic rhythms, their flora and fauna are sustained for thousands of years. That is how, that is what I, I show in my book. Yeah, and so uh, you talk about the distinction between dharma and religion. And so how do you distinguish this? Right, so religion word comes with the you know, root of religio, which comes from Abrahamic notions of, you know, having a sacred scripture, a prophet or a messiah, and uh, trying to organize a community around a scripture or around a prophet or a messiah. You know, non-Western cultures are not necessarily based on those notions. There, are, there, is, no, there is no founder there is no one scripture, there is no one messiah or prophet. So the idea is not to organize the community around, uh, you know, on particular on one particular day, such as Sunday or Friday. But the idea is to, to live according to the principles of nature, to live uh, by treating every particle of the universe as divine. That is the idea of Buddhism, where, when, in, when Buddhism talks about jewel net of Indra, which means the entire cosmos is a jewel net of Indra. Every particle is a reflection of all the other infinite particles of the universe. Every particle has this reflection of the Buddhahood, of Buddha nature, which means every particle becomes divine in Jewel Night of Indra in Buddhism. Similarly, in Hinduism, Brahman pervades every particle of the universe. So everything becomes divine. Every being becomes divine in Hinduism. Similarly, in Jainism, because everything has soul. Even air, fire, earth, and water has soul in Jainism. So every being has the right to survive, to flourish, not just survive, not just to sustain, but to thrive. Every being has inherent right and privilege and duty to survive and thrive and flourish in all these three traditions. Because all three are based on the dharmic ideas of universality of, of spiritual, spirituality, universality of 
Atman, Brahman, Buddhahood. That is the idea of Brahma, where there is no separation between God and humans, humans or nature, animals or humans, nature or culture, all those boundaries and barriers automatically dissolve when the ideas of universality of Dharma, Brahman, Buddha, and Atma are applied in Buddhism, Hinduism, Jainism. That is the idea. That is how Dharma is different from the idea of religion. Um, yeah. And when to- talking about in Brahman, you have also often taken the example of um, Christianity in that sense of how, in terms of Christianity, how their idea of trying to understand in Brahman have also developed. So coming to the idea of Dharma and trying to understand in Brahman uh, from the perspective of Dharma for Hindu communities, what, what do you think is the difference between how Christians try to understand it and how the thermic view try to understand the environment? Right. Uh... Christianity also has a great example of St. Nicholas of Pusa. Mm. Uh, St. Nicholas, um, uh, who, uh, who was also, you know, was able to talk to animals and birds. And uh, so there are some, you know, exceptional examples, even in Christianity, where some saints have talked to uh, animals and birds and very animal friendly. Uh, and in, in recent times, Christianity is also being, you know, there's a major focus, especially in the U.S. And even the Pope, you know, the current Pope in Rome has uh, given these new guidelines of uh, even a new environmental destruction is also one of the sins, according to the you know, Pope in, in, in Catholicism. So Christianity is also trying to reinterpret itself and trying to become more and more environmental friendly. And even, you know, many churches have, re, you know, given these new guidelines to take care of the environment. And something which is, you know, you know, we find more and more in common uh, with what is what has been already happening in the Hindu text for, for thousands of years. You know, in Ramayana and Mahabharata, you know, entire episodes, entire text is woven around forests. You know, main heroes, main protagonists, Pandavas and Ram and Lakshman and Sita, they're always roaming around in the forests. You know, entire life is, is woven around the forests. Uh, uh, and uh, so that is how we, you know, in Veda, many, many rituals are around trees stones, animals, birds in Hinduism, Buddhism, and, and Jainism, of course, because of non-violence, also treats every particle as, you know, very, very uh, carefully and very respectfully. So those things are also happening now, or now in Christianity as the reinterpretation is going on, as the, they call it constructive theology. So they are trying to reconstruct theology in the new light of environmentalism. So that is how it is also happening in Christianity now. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's uh, that's quite interesting. I see. Since you have gone through uh, through interviewing uh, these people and you have uh, seen the ground reality of how uh, this thermic understanding of the environment is practiced, and you know you have really thought about these aspects. So coming to uh, the the modern life is when when the, the 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 structure, the big structures like building, and then the kind of like machinery and uh, all of these industries are necessary, right? Uh, so. Uh, how does uh, these two go hand in hand? The dharmic understanding of environment and how does the the the, the, the advancement in technology and all, all those things? How can these two go hand in hand in terms of uh, yeah the development in industries and all? Yeah, now it's a big challenge because uh, all these great ideas uh, that Gandhi also exemplified exemplified. Uh, Gandhi didn't want modern you know big industries. Uh, and he was all, you know, more in support of local communities, such as what, what I describe also, Bishnois, Swadhyays, and Hills. They're all rural communities. They're not, you know, urban communities. But uh, with big cities and big industries, uh, it is going to be a challenge now. Uh, you know, it's already, 
you know, effects of climate change, we can already experience, you know, all these big floods in every part of the world now, Germany or Spain or Italy or United States or India, no part of the world is now untouched by climate change impact. So it's, it's a bit too late now for us to, you know, think of dharmic ideas because these communities have been doing these things for, for you know, thousands of years in the case of Bheel community, hundreds of years in the case of Vishnoi community and many decades now by Swadhyayi. But these are all now, you know, small kind of role models. You know, if we listen to these communities, if we listen to Gandhi, we could have avoided climate change impact. Now all we can do is mitigate the effects of climate change. We have to really save the society, whatever society is left now, we have to just try to save it now. So we have to now really accelerate and, you know, go for more green technologies. If, but, uh, you know, even that is, that may be too late because, you know, no technology has, there is no technology that does not have a carbon footprint. You know, even electric cars are made with, you know, great amount of carbon, greenhouse gas emissions that are emitted into the atmosphere. There is no, you know, there is no sacred, uh, there is no magic bullet now. Uh, unfortunately, we are hit now for, for avoiding climate change. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, and I think all of us together, as as human, as humanity, we need to work uh, towards you know trying to better understand also Edison and mitigate these effects. So I think that's something which is very important. So in our conversation, is there anything that I've missed out which is uh, which you think is important and needs to be spelled out? Yeah. No, I think we covered pretty much, uh, yeah, all the major aspects. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's that's my first book. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So the norm is that I ask you what are, is your next project, but then, you know, we are coming together again for another book of yours. So give a kind of a teaser for our next podcast interview about your next book. Yeah. Uh, it's called as Moving the Mountains, okay. Science and Social Religious revolution in India and that is based on my research in Uttarakhand and Punjab mm. so we'll talk about that uh, maybe in the second episode yeah I think that'll be very exciting we'll be talking about the scientific aspect right yes yes <laughs> so, sure, yeah sure. <laughs> that that will be very interesting so I think I'm also eagerly waiting for the next podcast because let me yes, say something sure. about this podcast itself and for the listeners also since uh, for me, uh, since my research work and my tradition has been from Christianity and my research work now, I'm into trying to understand Christianity and animism in the Northeast, uh, the place I'm from and all. And I haven't really I haven't really gone much into the Hindu communities and their texts and all. So I think for, for me, I think the conversation here is a very uh, good learning. It has been a really good learning experience in that sense, because uh, at least I'm talking with someone who has really gone into texts and who have understood the communities. And you know, brings example from the uh, the the firsthand research work. So I think uh, it's a very good starting point for also for any listeners to really pick up the book and also kind of you know where this conversation and the book can go hand in hand in trying to understand the conceptual aspects and also trying to understand the Hindu communities and how uh, the Dharma uh, works and how it can really help in trying to mitigate the environmental crisis that we are also facing. So I think it has been a very lovely conversation. Thank you, uh, Dr. Pankaj for being here with me. Thank you, Tia.